Hello, you're listening to the Rock Paper Shotgun Electronic Wireless Show with me, Brendan. We've been following a different format for the past few episodes where instead of talking amongst ourselves about the games we've been playing, we instead talk to creators about the games that they've made in the run-up to the Independent Games Festival, uh, which is probably over by the time you're hearing this, but never mind. This week we've got the creators of action-adventure game Hyper Light Drifter and Adventure Game Virginia on to talk to both of them about visual storytelling and how you can tell a tale without using any words at all. number of developers, probably the most we've had on any one of these podcasts. I'm here with uh, Bo Blythe and Alex Preston of Heart Machine, developers of Hyperlight Drifter, and Jonathan Burrows and Matt Wilde from Variable State, the creators of Virginia. We wanted the developers of Inside to be here too, but we sadly couldn't get a hold of them in the end. Um, but that doesn't mean we can't talk about their game behind their back <laughs> if we all want to. Absolutely. So, so guys, um, we'll just do some introductions first. I've been doing this with everyone to just explain your game in a sentence or two. Um, We'll start with Alex or Bo. Alex, you can go ahead. Oh, sure. Uh, I'm Alex Preston. Uh, I was lead for Hyperlight Drifter, um, which is a game, uh, an action RPG, uh, kind of in the 16-bit classic vein of uh, games, and it's a kind of uh kind of a sad game <laughs> overall <laughs> but with a lot of a lot of monster murder in it also uh, i'm bo blythe i'm one half of the programming team on hyperlight drifter uh, and i mainly focused on enemies and bosses effects stuff like that wildlife that was fun <laughs> okay cool um what about matt and jonathan you guys tell us a little bit about yourselves and, and uh virginia i go first matt i think you probably should i mean it's your game I thought it's our game. Um, <laughs> yes, uh, so I'm Jonathan Burrows. Um, so uh, I was uh, co-director. I guess it sounds very lofty. Uh, I was one of the people that worked on on Virginia, which uh, I, I guess you could say is a game equally inspired by uh, uh, Brendan Chung's Thirty Flights of Loving and TV shows um, that I grew up watching, like The X Files and Twin Peaks. Uh, in 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 mechanics and in, in atmosphere, at least, and it's the story of uh, two FBI detectives and their friendship, really. And it also is quite a sad story, I think. It doesn't feature any wildlife, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if only we'd had Bo, it would all have been different. Um, and I <laughs> had the great pleasure. To everything. I'll say again. Sorry, I was just like, add birds to everything. There were birds, though, actually. There were birds. There was one very, yeah, one very dead bird. And I had the great pleasure of. It's a great pleasure working with Matt Wilde, who can talk a bit more about things beyond my pay grade. Great pleasure. Um, <laughs> hello, 
Yes, so I, I'm Matt Wild, and I also worked on Virginia um, as a technical artist, really, um, covering various art disciplines. But um, Virginia was particularly interesting in its style, stylistic approach, and um, that was all quite a lot of fun to define that and get it working. So each of the games does have their own uh, distinct style. Hyperlight Drifter is this finely drawn pixel art world. You know, a little drop of blood next to a body can be the size of a pixel, for example. What appeals to you guys at Heart Machine about about that style? Hmm. I mean, a lot. A lot of it. I guess you know, there's a sense of nostalgia to it. Um, but also, I think for me, um, developing the style, there's something to the term pixel art where it's not just a pixel game but it can be an art form in itself there's a lot of constraints uh to it that can create interesting opportunities and so finding those opportunities and exploiting those opportunities and figuring out what works and doesn't work with that limited tool set is super fascinating to me and has been a big challenge uh throughout the development process but i don't know i uh i'm drawn to that aesthetic for a lot of reasons and mostly just because i feel like it can be elevated beyond just like, oh, crude art. Yeah, what I always liked about Hyperlight was um, it's it's like what you felt like Super Nintendo games looked like at the time. So like you go back and play like NES or Super Nintendo, and you're like, oh, this isn't as good as I remember it because like as a kid everything's better. So I feel like what now, kind of what I really like seeing in games is uh, developers finding this like like this retro aesthetic but it's like new retro it like has all the what we liked about the old stuff but it's heightened to like how we felt about the old stuff and yeah i like that that's that's not going away and something i really like about pixels is that um they really what you said about the blood a blood could be one pixel that is still like really great proportions for gameplay so like you it's a pixel um, and that's as small as you can go, but you can still see that. And I think, like, in a lot of high-def games, what, what bugs me is, uh, using, like, high-resolution graphics is that a lot of things can get really lost. Because if you do, like, you know, you zoom in, like, 100 times, and then you spend all this time working on, like, this this blood graphic or whatever, and then you stamp it somewhere where you'll be, barely be able to see it, it's like it just disappears completely. And I think, like, what Alex was saying about... Um, the limitations of pixel art, like, they help you a lot. You can't, you know, like like with that, you can't make something and it disappears. Like, the smallest you can go, it's still in the game. It's still readable. There's definitely some uh, some visual tricks going on in, in, in among the people in this podcast. Um, and I guess, like, pixel art kind of matches up with how people feel about this kind of game. It's a Zelda-like world where certain things are locked off until you become a little better or you understand what you need to do to pass through. Certain doors are locked. Um, but it can also be like a very fast-paced game. Um, you're dashing about. You're trying not to get hit. You're going here and there. I mean, how, but how do you ensure clarity for a player when there's so much going on on the screen? Uh, it's difficult. You know, I think with the style, I, I redid tile sets a lot and enemies and all that stuff to get that clarity because... If you overcomplicate just a, just enough, then things become muddy, and it's it's difficult to visually distinct make a visual distinction between um, the action on screen and the set pieces and the various um, ites, uh, objects and sprites in the world. 
Um, so it's it's a fine balance, and I always found myself pulling back when I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to make this grass a little more detailed. I'm going to make this floor texture more detailed. It's like, no, no, no. As soon as I do that, everything gets lost, and it's just it's too much. It's too much. So I think trying to keep things simple, Not it's not about being sparse or about being efficient or anything like that because it certainly wasn't efficient, the methods that I used <laughs> to redraw this stuff a million yeah. different times. It was just really, really about visual clarity more than anything else. Yeah. It does a it yeah. does a particular thing as well, um, which will be important when we talk about Virginia soon, which is that it tells its whole shtick, its whole story, or the goals of the character in its art. For example, when you go up to a person in a in the hub town at the center of it all and you chat to them, you expect a dialogue box, but instead their speech bubble is it's just filled with a pixel art canvas of something. You know, it's a panel-by-panel panel message of something that happened or something that uh, lies in wait ahead or something like that. Why did you guys go with that idea? Because it's so much more work than having someone just say, you know, there's this <laughs> bad thing ahead. It's true. It is more work. It's, it's but, a lot more. But I think it's, it's effective in preserving the mystery of the game and, like, where, you know, where... You might be super impressed by like, oh, like look this huge world, and like, oh, it goes on forever, and you know, you're building all these like really great ideas in your head. And I think the moment you walk up to an NPC and he's like, grab the great Shmuglabu, which is the magic sword in this place, or fight the, you know, the evil wizard, blurb blop, like, it can kind of take away some of that magic. And not that that was ever going to be part of the game, but like, just I feel like that's how I feel in games that affect me and then like you start getting into like the writing and it's like oh i liked kind of what my idea was better and i think um this like you know i mean because we had very solid ideas for the 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 world and stuff but in this way like reading into the art and, uh is like more rewarding and and preserves that mystery yeah we, we had talked internally a lot to both point about um you know leaving things to the player's imagination so that it can become their, their, their interpretation can be more valuable than our own explicit um, telling of a story. And so, yeah, uh, and then, through, yeah, go ahead. Bo. Oh, sorry. And then no one can tell that the player is wrong. Like we're not saying, no, you're wrong. Your idea is wrong. Like everybody's right. And I think that's, that's more special. Uh, yeah, yeah, you get to see like cool interpretations in YouTube videos analyzing all these different aspects of the game and visual cues and whatever else that pop up throughout building out their own lore for it. And it's like, oh, yeah, you got this right and this right. And this is a really weird connection that you made. And that's super interesting. And it's just it's fascinating yeah. to see all these breakdowns and interpretations of things. It's like, cool, that's great. I'm never going to say a word about it because I, just, yeah. I want to see more of those. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I see I can see Jonathan <laughs> nodding um, there in the in the Skype call. Because I feel like um, maybe you know that has a lot in common with Virginia. Um, That's true. <laughs> you know, there's there's well, there's absolutely no dialogue in Virginia, um, which is again surprising because it it looks hugely filmic. You know, you get to ten minutes in and you just have to tell yourself, okay, nobody's going to talk here. How do you deal with that as a as a storytelling problem, guys? Because there are some things uh, that are hard to explain without words. Well, it's actually, just before I answer that question directly, it's fascinating to hear Alex and, and Bo talk about very similar things to, to cover very similar things, the conversations we had in Virginia, particularly in regards to clarity of information, not over-cluttering the world, and how using a simplified 
art style uh, means that actually suddenly every artistic decision seems very deliberate, whereas you're accustomed to modern games being filled with clutter and a certain amount of visual noise. When you pair that back, suddenly little details mean a lot more, and, and there seems to be perhaps intent in things that whether we didn't even realise there was stuff that was just a off-the-cuff decision. I've gone off on a tangent. Um, <laughs> I mean, I mean, so from I mean, it was from the earliest earliest days really that we had decided we wouldn't use. Um, dialogue, and so when writing the story, it was very much a case of we, you could you could you could evaluate a scene and know this this won't convey the right information because it it's dependent on conversation or or even by the absence of conversation this will look wacky or something you know like to have too many you know to have too, too many mute characters in a, in a scene just won't 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 read right and so it was it was a case of finding making sense of, of being around these characters but being coming across them at the end of a conversation or before anyone reasonably reasonably uh starts speaking and the, the sort of pregnant pauses between 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 bits of dialogue so so on paper i think we had discovered a story we found a story we could tell which didn't require dialogue it definitely shifted uh like in, in terms of con- conveying information i mean we, we also set ourselves th- ourselves the requirement that there'd be a minimum of, of text and where text did feature it would be kind of optional and although there are these scenes where you do get a great dossier to look through or something like that really you, you don't need to take in what's written on it I, I don't think to certainly get the emotional impact of the story and the emotional drive that we're going for I mean maybe you do if, if you're particularly invested in the, the plot details but it's not I don't, I don't see it as essential so so in that that sense it was the character performance definitely and 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 certain cues in how environments were constructed but actually a lot of it was achieved on paper um matt i'll, I'll hand over to you i've done a lot of talking i did always i did always like the idea that the scenes without dialogue were still potentially realistic that they they were plausible rather so it was as you say the end of a conversation or maybe people started talking after that and every scene did have that feel to it. it. It wasn't like the dialogue was taken away. It wasn't like the world was mute. It was just that every scene had a kind of awkwardness about it because for whatever reason, um, the characters weren't talking at that point. And that in itself can convey certain emotions. It can, it can convey certainly awkwardness, but yeah, um, secrecy and um, many other things really. And so it becomes a tool then. Um, and Obviously, other ways of going about not having spoken dialogue would be just pretending and having subtitles or or speech bubbles or something like that. But it was never it was never designed like that. It was always designed to just be a world in which presumably people do speak, but we uh, we just happen to miss it all. And um, I suppose that goes along with some of the other things that were in the game, like the uh, the fact that it could cut at any moment because the scenes were were edited to to help that mood being pushed along. Virginia felt very uh, dreamlike to me. Like when you, especially the way it starts, like where it's just like, oh, you feel like this intensity and that you're on a mission and you're like guided by like some other force, like in a dream where sometimes you're like, oh, you just have an intense feeling and you're like lost. You don't exactly know where you're going, but it works out in the end. And like, you're able to, to like go back and like remap the things that happened to like what you learned about what you're doing. And it's, it's like, um, I don't know, you guys use a lot of really great cinematography tricks that, like, they, they just work really well. <laughs> and uh, I'm while playing it, I was reminded of, um, I don't, 
exactly know the name of this, but it's like it's like the man and the cake. It's like a cinematography history thing where it's like um, it's the same shot of a man just with a neutral expression. And then it, in, it intercuts between a cake and then the man and then a baby and then the man and then like a grave and the man. And uh, people who saw it like left going like, oh, he's the best actor ever. He's such a good actor. <laughs> <laughs> but you know he didn't do anything it was just them putting the images together and i think like yeah you guys really use that the, yeah. the best tool of cinematography i feel like <laughs> a, a lot of its appeal and a lot of how you read into it um lacking the dialogue yeah. is in is in the small actions like there are um sideways glances from a secretary you know or the expressions on a people's face at one point you're coming out of a interrogation room and you see someone patting someone else on the back who you didn't realize had been connected before necessarily and now mm. you see that and you kind of go are they old friends or associates what is going on here you know like and it's just it just sets things running in your mind yeah but, it's the details yeah but however john and matt it it is sometimes just plain difficult to know what's going on <laughs> yeah no i think i mean i, I just actually to 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 um to repeat something that alex and Bo said about their game um our desire was very much that a certain amount would be left open to interpretation that it would be that the that, that we would we we would respect the, the the player's right to to have subjective interpretation of, of the game and that we would kind of wash our hands of it to some extent that no, i wouldn't want to say that there is a, a right way to to read i mean there's an intent behind it in, in how it was put together, but it was the product of three writers and a team of 1.12 people. So it, it's a, it, 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 and I think I feel we've all fed into the storytelling in, in, in some way, like be it through decisions Matt has made as a technical artist, like particularly decisions Lyndon's made, Lyndon Holland, the composer made in the, the music, but, but because it's this multimedia medium and this, this game, I think it, it, it because of the, the things we've taken away from the game in terms of traditional storytelling tools, then, then, then other aspects of it uh, are, are allowed to come to the surface, like subtleties in physical performance or details in how an environment is laid out and so on. Yeah, I mean, um, I guess a lot of it comes down to how much faith you have in the player to interpret that wordless um, communication in the way that you hope is interesting to them in some way. Um, with Virginia, has anyone ever come to you and said, okay, this is what I think happened, and been so far off what you'd been thinking at the time? <laughs> I think there were some interesting interpretations, weren't there? Some, somewhere, pe- people, people have written almost essays on, on, uh, on their interpretations, and, well, they don't necessarily uh, coincide with our own interpretations, but um, that doesn't take away from them, and, and it's really interesting to hear them, and it's really interesting to see the detail that people go into, and certainly the you know the, the evidence that they'll gather to to back up their um, their theory, because uh, you know some of these things, you, the colour of a light somewhere, say you know could be used to to signify something, and then link to some other things uh, elsewhere in the story, say, and and um, as someone who coloured that light, I I can. I can say myself, it wasn't a conscious decision to link it to that, but actually I still buy that argument because it's a really good argument. Yeah, there, there have been some very thoughtful and interesting interpretations. I mean, I don't, I can't think of specific references to some people have to go and look for them, but but things that have kind of surprised us, but have been, I, I don't know, it certainly got me thinking at times because the, it was a game many years in development, and obviously there's a legacy of decisions that get forgotten and and multiple people working on a project and. 
Uh, sometimes I, I wonder if something was left in it that, you know, things get left in it that you forget about. And, and maybe there is a reading of the game that I've just completely been oblivious to. But, uh, I don't know. I think that's excellent. And that's very, that's, that's exciting if it's achieving that. If there's confusion in it at, at some points, that is, again, another thing that your games might have in common. For Hyperlight Drifter, our own reviewer, John, did two pieces about it because he actually missed that there were multiple avenues in the game that had been open to him. And he he went back to write about it again after people pointed this out. Is there a point in playtesting, um, Bo and Alex, when you were afraid that it didn't explain itself enough? Uh, I mean, for me, there's always that kind of worry. Like, you want to make sure that you ride that fine line between not holding a player's hand, giving them enough freedom of choice, but also guiding them down particular pathways or experiences that you want to craft. And so trying to balance those kind of opposing forces out when it comes to the game design, the level design, and all that stuff is is difficult because ultimately players will make a lot of different choices um, unless you present them with no choices at all. That's the only way to guarantee (laughs) um, very specifically what they'll do. But that's kind of the beauty of an interactive medium like games where they have the opportunity to choose where and how they want to do things. And so, I don't know, you have to relinquish some of that and say like, okay, yeah, sure, maybe they will go north and go fight the bird boss and they'll hate the game and throw the controller away and that's okay. And you kind of have to be able to let go and and, um, kind of reconcile internally if, if that's the game we're designing and we want that players will give up on it. Well, I feel like most of the people who play games, at least the games that I like and that I make, and, um, are, are like, they're there to fight monsters. And then I think, like, once they start getting bored of fighting monsters, then that's when they'll, they'll start looking into the story. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and I think at that point, they're, they have, like, an investment that, you know, has grown inside of them. So they'll be more uh, open to what they find. And they'll be more invested in it. As far as, like, making sure they find things, I think we... Like, there's some things we definitely wanted them to see. But I think the other part of that is if you force them to see everything, then that makes everything less special. And if you hide some things, like, and they go out looking and, you know, they just stumble upon it, like, that makes that event, like, so much more special we would go back a lot to uh, like Dark Souls design because there's so much stuff in Dark Souls where you're like, I've been playing that game for years and like I hear new things of like, oh, did you know you could do this? And I was just like, what? And it's like I've had about like 11 or 12 revelations about like all this stuff, all this like big important stuff that they hide. And they're like, we don't care if you never see it. Like, I love that stance. Yeah, I was actually going to bring up Dark Souls actually in my next question which, because <laughs> they're, the similarity is that and I know everybody always points out that a game is similar to Dark Souls because every game is now similar to Dark Souls. Um, right. But um, <laughs> the the fact that people really, really read into the lore of Dark Souls and it's nothing but like kind of garbled descriptions of, of items or you know or you know history of the items or whatever. Hyperlight Drifter does it in a different way in that it's a lot more open. You know, it's like there's a picture of a of a bad thing and it's in the corner of the world and you're like, I don't know how it got there or why it's there. <laughs> um, 
Um, but there are these crystals everywhere, and maybe the crystals had something to do with it or whatever. So yeah, I that, think... that to me feels like the first Zelda, where it's just like there's all this stuff here, but there's no like descriptions, and that's okay. It's more like a real adventure that way because no one's. If you were to go out into the wilderness and find a you know temple, no one would be there explaining things to you. But I think that would be very exciting. And also, yeah, there wouldn't. I think there wouldn't necessarily be like like a knife telling you like this is Cedric's knife and this is why he was at this temple or anything. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think um, you know, sure, Dark Souls has been like an apt comparison for plenty of things because it's been so influential with a lot of games and developers um, over the past decade plus because it's successful in a lot of its design. And it's successful, especially with keeping this, keeping players motivated while, like Bo was saying, keeping a lot of mystery and secrets around. And they don't, they don't really give a, a crap if you find things or not. It's like you can play that game and just slash stuff and kill things and destroy things and never understand the story at all if you choose to. But you, you also have the option of really digging in. And I think for, for us, for Hyperlight, that was a big part of it, too, is like, yeah, you know, you can easily play that game and ignore all the NPCs. And, you know, we only really make you talk to a couple of them. But even then, like, it's not vital. Um, and you could completely misunderstand what the story is or the point of any of these little cutscenes or vignettes that we're placing throughout. And again, it's something we talked about internally. Like, that's OK. It's like it's totally OK. Um, because it's at the end of the day, it's still fun to slash stuff, and it's still fun. You can still find in points of interest and look at a little bit, like you know, take a moment or two to look at some things and be like, oh yeah, that looks cool. And maybe that's all people will get. Some people will get from it. And that's hey, that's more than I can ask for. Uh, in some cases, we're talking about all these similarities between Virginia and Hyperlight Drifter, um, but there are there are pretty noticeable differences as well. Like, um, Virginia, for example, it's not gamey at all in the traditional sense. You know, you get one thing in a scene to do at a time. Usually, like you go and open a drawer, you go and uh, you drink a cup of coffee, you drink a beer, something like that, and then it, it cuts to something else. Jonathan and Matt, why did you want to keep that simple an approach? I guess um, I guess what we'd seen, or, or, or what I'd seen in in, in some games that. Virginia was, was directly inspired by, I guess, kind of old games, empathy games, walking simulators, things like that. Games which are very intentionally paired back traditional game mechanics. Um, what you, the result was when you got a game which, because I guess a lot of the time the mechanics are are your way, are the way of the, the player expressing themselves, or are the and thus are, and thus can become the, the themes of the, the story. When you, you pair this this stuff back, it, your story can be it's perhaps there's potential to elicit a broader range of emotions. But I think that was, that was an interesting property of, of games like Dear Esther and Gone Home and various other games that, that, of that of that kind that that they had a different a different feeling to them and, and were, were achieving different things from an emotional perspective because of the omission of traditional mechanics and that was very that was very exciting to see and 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 actually I was, I was conscious hearing Alex talk about about the, the importance of affording players choice and I, I, I very much. Believe that, that that to be a strength of, 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 of you know of, of the medium and interactive artwork and such and and I was very conscious of, it, of course taking a very different approach and really like a lot of the times to get the scenes to work we'd had to really restrict player control and and things like that but I think with Virginia we saw 
what we what, what we we felt was the strength of it being a game over a film or anything else was the opportunity to to get that sense of of embodying a character and to and even if it's only in the minutest little things that you're able to do move your head you know have have that control but you know have that control of the cinematography that you wouldn't have if it was a film and that you know the frame is com- is completely set but in virginia you're moving a character's head you're 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 able to suspend disbelief and believe you're role playing this character and 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 as such i think have a you know an empathic connection to what they're going through and hopefully feel much closer to you know f- you know having these experiences that are distinct from the ones that you'd have in your own life and that being a meaningful contribution to the storytelling so uh i realize i've completely forgotten your original question Brendan. sorry <laughs> but uh that was uh, uh i guess that was our, that was that was some of the intent with with virginia i i, ca- I came onto the project when um you know, the demo had already been made and, and I actually first saw it myself at um, EGX, one of the shows in London, and played the demo. And um, it really it really struck me as something different. And I like puzzle games. I, I like adventure games. I like, you know, the Monkey Island kind of thing. And I was almost thinking, you know, well, maybe, maybe that's how the game should be. But actually the thing that struck me when I played it was that uh, it wasn't like that, that um, it was a, a constrained experience. And then the other question that it begs is, you know, why be a video game? Why not be something else? And, you know, I think I read some comments to that. But as, as Jonathan said, I think Virginia, along with other things that do get called walking simulators, I think they do give you a sense of empathy that you wouldn't get through other uh, media, that you wouldn't get through a short film or, or something like that. And um, even just having the first scene being looking in a mirror, is something that um, shows you that you are someone else, um, but you have control of them, but you don't have total control of them. And so it's almost like being in someone else's head. You know, sometimes whilst we're developing it, you might think the question is about, you know, what happens if the player doesn't actually do the interaction that we want them to do? And how much do you have to funnel the player to make it so that the experience is as we intend it to be? But of course, players can do whatever they want even if even if they only have to click on something they might not decide to click on that and in some cases we have to push that on anyway but that's probably more the exception in 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 those situations where you're in a car driving down a road and the road's about to actually run out and uh you know we're gonna drive off the end of the earth we we do actually have to um artificially move things on but but otherwise we we did shy away from from using that and if you want to just hang around the scene and look at stuff as much as you want. You might be doing things that would be strange for real life, but you know, you're used to being in a video game and you spend an inordinate amount of time looking at small objects and trying to pick little things up and things like that are great for um, solving puzzles, but they, they can also take away from the story. So not having those kinds of interactions in there, not having your mind maybe thinking about odd objects and keys and you know all the sorts of things that you usually find in games like that does allow you i suppose to streamline the experience at least and and so you're going to see things much more so as intended but with enough of uh, enough freedom left to to make you feel like you only experience yourself yeah i i also um read something that i thought was uh, technically impressive although didn't entirely understand about virginia <laughs> which is that because there are so many cuts between scenes for the next scene to be loaded in in advance you had to have have all the scenes 
there but not visible or something? I can you explain it? So could you explain it to me in in terms that I will understand? Well, I mean, ori originally the um, the demo actually everything was in one single scene, um, which is very very difficult to work with, but it just about held up for the amount that was in the demo and to put that in context i don't know the demo was what 15 minutes or something and the yeah. the full experience is maybe two hours maybe maybe a bit less so it's it's streaming in the same way that uh, a lot of games stream but a lot of games streaming content depending on where you decide to go um you know which bit of the world needs to be loaded in next um it was at least more predictable than that because you knew which the next scene was going to be um but we also because of the cuts every every single cut it should be said every single cut was a different scene as well a different scene in unity the um the software that we used to develop it and so we ended up with was it about 150 or something different actual scene files and there probably would have been some cleverer ways to go about it but we did actually have 150 scene files and if there were any of the um if there were any processes that needed applying to each scene, then that really was a case of just opening 150 files and doing a thing 150 times and then saving 150 times and closing 150 times. There were some yeah, things uh, that could be prefab, but there was a lot of that as well, wasn't there? I think we could probably have done things in a different way. We could have been cleverer about that, yeah. But, but I think it was the, the number of scenes did increase as we were going along as well. And um, yeah, some of them were really, really short. Some of the cuts were like two seconds long, but it was still... Um, he was still loading that scene ahead of time, and all credit to um, Kieran, the coder who who um, got that working as slickly as he could do. And uh, yeah, you know the score never stopped, so the cuts would happen, but the score would continue over the whole thing. And that that in itself, just the the music, um, the way that you know certain things had to happen on certain beats, and so certain scenes were of a variable length really to to fit the music as well. Both uh, Hyperlight Drifter and uh, Virginia have uh, been nominated for uh, Excellence in Visual Art at the Independent Games Festival, but they've also both been nominated for Excellence in Audio. Am I right in th thinking that? I believe so. Yeah, uh, yeah. Again, there's a huge difference. You know, Virginia has this orchestral swell of music, like, and there's it just it just never stops. You know, it's quieter at some points. There's silence at some points. But this sense of, you know, pro progress and progress and progress and it's full of all these classical crescendos and, and, and things. But Hyperlight Drifter it, it is more like a kind of like warbly ambient kind of feel. I, I'm just wondering, you know, um, where the decision was made to take it in either one of those directions, I guess, starting with Hyperlight Drifter. For us, ultimately, our decision-making was guided by just the feelings that we wanted to convey um, in any given space in that game. And there was also a larger overarching narrative um, from the audio standpoint of how we wanted that to build up and how we wanted that to crescendo, um, you know, the climax <laughs> of it and then the after aftermath of it as well. We, I don't know, we, we treated it much like a story because building that out takes a lot of uh, careful thought and plotting. And, you know, I, we didn't really ramp up for action scenes a whole lot. 
Um, we chose mm. to do so for bosses and maybe a few points here and there, but I, you know, for the most part, since the player is going through a lot of different enemies and mixing between exploration and fighting quite a bit throughout the process, it didn't make sense to do something like uh, the modern 3D Zeldas do, where it's like, oh, now here comes the enemy music, which always bothered yeah. the hell out of me. Because I, <laughs> I, I really, really wanted to just listen to that Forest Temple music. I never wanted to hear that enemy music. Every time I did, I was annoyed. And so that was something for me. It's like, I love that. I love that music. Let me just listen to it. And so it was a very deliberate choice here to be like, let's just go with the music that we're making and not try and not try and do some really heavy handed stuff too often. It's not that it doesn't happen because there are specific spots that are beyond bosses, um, kind of a hellstorm of enemies or, you know, there's multiple tiers of enemies coming in, multiple waves coming in. And we definitely like rich definitely used a lot of tricks there and ramped up the music to make it more intense. Uh, but I think more often than not, we chose to keep it more ambient because it it suited the mixed nature of gameplay and styles that we were um, focusing on. Yeah, and it also suits the the mood because that's what differs it most, I think, from like Zelda. Is it's not just an adventure song playing the whole time. It's like reflecting the character's sadness. I guess I. I, I... <laughs> Proper the same question to Matt and Jonathan. You know, why is this um, more classical music in this game? Yeah, I realise Horace um, have to speak for for Lyndon, the the game's composer, to some degree. I was just while while Alex and Bo were talking, I was trying to reflect on how we got to where we got. Because it wasn't where we started. I, I remember Lyndon initially had a uh, it was certainly a, a soundtrack that was much heavier on synths and much lighter on on uh, instru- instrumentation and and just in part it was a, a process of iteration not really born of any problem solving need a function of the soundtrack was always going to be in the absence of dialogue that it would have to do some of the storytelling it would certainly have to convey the emotional intent of scenes where that was otherwise ambiguous and some might say with because the, the, the soundtrack as it as it exists in the final version is quite grandiose in places maybe and and I, I I've seen some criticism in some places that that's that's heavy-handed but I I've certainly I, I I find it more thrilling and overwhelming in in a way that I find very attractive I think it was more just Lyndon went on his own a, 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 a terrible cliche he went on a sort of his own journey and and perhaps as as time went on lost interest in the original expression of the soundtrack that, that he, he had sort of clung to perhaps during the prototype and, and just, and, and then, the, and there, there, the, we, we about midway through development had the opportunity to, to, to use, uh, to do a, a, a live score as well. And, 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 and that decision definitely biased the, the sound production more towards instrument, instrument instrumentation. If Lindemann here, he could cite the particular composers, the particular film composers he was, he was inspired by. I know there are some names that, he mentioned to me numerous times and shame on me for guessing. I feel like uh, th- there are times whenever I listen to it and um, I just I just think that's just very like Stranger Things weirdness. Um, but I don't know if that's what he was going for or not. I know. I suppose Stranger Things is similarly nostalgic. I guess for the kind of I suppose we're drawing from similar references and a similar time period. I know Lennon was very would would cite certain landmark films of the 1980s separate to the ones that inspired. The themes of the game, but just that I guess that were close to him and the films that he grew up watching 
and the artists that he, he admired that they, they inspired the soundtrack. I wish I had Lyndon here. Sorry, I'm this is a terrible answer to your to your question. But it, but I guess that was fundamentally the intent was that the soundtrack would would have to be uh, would have to do some storytelling. And so maybe if uh, and so the, the use of recurring themes and motifs in the soundtrack that you know that, that we could revisit that could be could foreshadow a, a, a repeat of that later in the story and that would be satisfying to hear it repeated uh, th- those i mean those are fairly standard things to do but they were certainly very important in virginia in the absence of dialogue i think maybe something that was unique to me um whilst developing the game was the fact that the soundtrack evolved as it did um in much the same way as the other content evolved because I think often um, soundtracks, or may, maybe this is a, an outdated thing, but but soundtracks would perhaps be commissioned, and then you know you'd get the music, and then someone would um, have to um, make them work, and you know get them working with the gameplay and everything like that. But because Lyndon was involved in more than just make, producing music, writing the music, but also writing the script, of course, at the at the start, and all the modifications that went along with that during the process. And um, he was just incredibly helpful in every other sense as well, you know, just just getting other things working, scripting, general scripting, some of the effects stuff that I was doing, you know, I'd say if you if you happen to be in there, can you do that, you know? So he, he had he had such a a large part of the general development that it it was it was really fascinating as as someone who was working on the game as it developed, and you know, you get used to seeing new artwork and and uh, new animations going in and, and you feel the game building up like that but I think on this more so than any other thing I've worked on before the music had a similar thing because yeah. of course some of the stuff that he made it's as someone who isn't a musician particularly you know you hear it and you think it's perfect it's fine it's brilliant and then the next version goes in and then you realize it how much better that was and it kept going like that and then of course he went to um, Prague and, and recorded with the orchestra and I remember thinking when when that was being planned, I remember thinking, well, what's the point? Because actually the soundtrack is is great. It's brilliant. I love it. You know, I love I love how it sounds. Then when you hear the results of it, you realise exactly what the point is because it sounded so much, so much better than I could have imagined, actually. Sometimes when you're developing games, audio can be can take a back seat for the developers, not necessarily for the players, but for the developers, because of the environment that you're in, you're not necessarily always listening to the to the audio when you're playing through but uh, again, more so on this one, I think it was always, it always felt like it was very important to be listening to the music as well. And for the, the mood that that conveyed, I, I don't know, I, I just think in terms of anything that I've ever worked on, the music on Virginia was more important and had a more important role. And I think, you know, some of those, some of the scenes, the, the crescendo of scenes, the, the, all the shortcuts together, you know, that could have just, that could have just, fallen apart completely maybe some people said it did but um you know the music really really did carry that along and um and made it a, a really thrilling experience yeah uh, sorry i, I realized actually that reminded me but that's what took that for granted but yeah certainly my experience and studio game development you know the music or the sound design is something that comes in at the 11th hour gets sort of parachuted in to a game that's kind of more or less done and this this i i think it's probably much more common in development these days, particularly in indie development, for a, a, the sound to be developed over the course of the game, but it was unusual for us. But it was so essential, and also, it, like things were kind of back to front at times. Lyndon would write an excellent piece of music that we would be so precious about that the game design, the, the, the scenes would have to be contracted or extended 
or we would have to find ways that the cuts could occur with the music and that the music would be so important that the game would accommodate the music um, or the, the, the music would have to accommodate the variances in the player's behavior. That I think more so than the technical challenges of getting the scenes to stream and cut, actually the, making the music work in, with the dynamism of the player was the biggest technical challenge and the solutions we had to find to make that work. We said we, we could talk about inside a little, even though the, the people aren't here to defend themselves. Um, <laughs> because that's also up for um, an IGF nomination, visual excellence. I, I just wanted to get the feeling of how you guys felt about that game as another game that doesn't tell its story explicitly, but through a distinct visual style. I love that game. <laughs> tell me why. I tell. Okay, I'll tell you why. It's just no. That's a weak point. Well, I'll say it anyway. I was just like, it's just so moody. But it, but unlike Limbo, it's not like hey indie silhouette game. It's like and I know they started it, but I'm tired of it. <laughs> but like. Uh, you really get a sense of place. And I was reminded a lot of um, Edward Hopper, like this certain uncanny golden hour dreamlike kind of uh, time of day and space. And they just carry it through to the end. You end up feeling so many different emotions like through it. And again, without like text or anything. And a lot of this is because you're asking questions like you see the little like the potato people they're growing and you're like oh are they are they changing people or are they growing people from scratch or like are you inside an entire factory this whole time like even when you thought you were in the forest are is the sky really just more walls like you know you have all these things you're asking yourself and um especially like the end Gwen, i'm just gonna spoil it <laughs> so if you're listening to this and you haven't played it you should good go point play. good point mute for a, a, a bit <laughs> actually can i raise um, my hand and say uh, i'm a terrible person and i haven't oh. played it <laughs> Jonathan, you should you. take off your headphones for a minute and i might I'll, I'll i'll message you <laughs> to say put them back on whenever um okay okay cool all right <laughs> yeah, on, it's all right we're safe now you go through so many emotions and i've never felt in a game so like disgusting but so beautiful and so powerful and so sad like all at the same time uh, and they achieve that through so many so many things and i think one of them actually similar to like virginia uh is like the use of restraint and stuff so it's like but we're not there's even a lot spo- you're not even spoiling anything jo- per jonathan sitting here with, with his headphones off okay we should Jonathan, you could have heard that entire speech. It was all fine. It was kosher. <laughs> I'm just being safe here. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I love the like. There's so much, so many shaders and so much graphics work and stuff going through there. But at the end, you're like, oh, that's simple. But it's like there's this just beautiful restraint involved. It kind of isn't simple, is it? It's like it, it does. It feels simple, but then when you look at it, it's actually really rich and. Yeah. As a technical artist, particularly, but just as a developer, you look at things and you kind of have an idea how most things are done. Although one of my litmus tests is that, you know, for some effect to be actually effective, you shouldn't really be able to tell how it's done. It should just look Mm. right. And yeah, I I think, first of all, you're kind of walking through there and, and they've got this awesome volumetric light that just seems to be completely global and not not using any of the usual tricks that that you would have previously done it just seems to work amazingly well and it's quite subtle and then i think it's when you get into the water-based scenes and suddenly it's the same effect but it has this hugely 
rich, um, just like the kind of constant particle, just just bits floating in the in the light. It's just incredible. And I look at it and I I want to know how it's done, but also I don't want to be thinking like that because it's just so beautiful, really. Yeah, like they've yeah, open sourced their their tech. Yeah, we did actually have a look at their um, their anti-aliasing because <laughs> their temporal anti-aliasing oh, nice. they they released. Yeah, we looked at it and we we um it just didn't really work for us. Um, but it obviously worked brilliantly for them and their particular scenes. Yeah. All right, I'm gonna cu- I'm gonna cut in before it gets too technical here. <laughs> but uh, I, I want to thank all of you guys for coming on uh, to talk to us. I'm afraid we, we're running out of time now. But once again, to Jonathan Burrows and Matt Wilde of Variable State, uh, thank you. Thank you, Brendan. And to Bo Blythe and Alex Preston from Heart Machine, thank thank you both uh, for coming in as well. You've been listening to the Rock Paper Shotgun Electronic Wireless Show with me, Brendan, and music by Jack DeKeet. That was the last of our IGF specials, where we talk to different developers about the games that they've made. But we may be doing some more things like that in the future, who knows? If you want to keep an eye out for that, you can subscribe to these podcasts on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. And you can also keep a lookout on our website, rockpapershotgun.com. I hope you've enjoyed listening to them otherwise. Thank you to all the developers who've joined us, and thank you for listening.